Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 53. We're in the middle of our first anniversary two-parter, a lighter episode about AI in fiction, books, movies, television. If you want to be pedantic, and if you are, you're my kind of audience, then this episode is actually the anniversary, even though last week's was episode 52, because our first episode was on June 22nd, 2020. And that means today, or technically tomorrow, is our one-year anniversary if you're listening to us on the day of release. For you computer programmers out there, it's a fence post error kind of calculation. For this discussion, I invited my two dear friends, Dr. Robert James and Jim Gifford, who were core team members with me on the 2007 convention we produced for the centennial of the science fiction author Robert Heinlein. Robert teaches literature and has a series of books about the Academy Awards called Who Won? An Irreverent Look at the Oscars. And Jim is my publisher and also the bibliographer of Heinlein. In addition to being an expert on characters from Frank Gilbreth to Max Headroom. Last week, we talked about AI in early science fiction and movies like Metropolis. And we've been following a loose timeline that takes us up to about the early 80s at the point we rejoin the discussion. Okay, we're back. <laughs> In the middle of our discussion with Jim Gifford and Robert James about AI in fiction, and we were just talking about Star Trek there, which, of course, was covering a lot of territory. And, well, okay, the next one that comes to mind is the Terminator. And this just leaves giant metallic footprints all over the landscape of anyone in artificial intelligence, because if you are interviewed as having any expertise in artificial intelligence by the media, they will run a picture of the Terminator next to you. <laughs> that is, is just guaranteed. And so as far as its implications, it's not that dramatic. I mean, if you've got an artificial intelligence with that kind of power, it picked just about the worst, most unreliable, self-defeating way of eradicating humanity that you could imagine. I mean, I could do much better than that but it does make for a, a good story. Is it a cult film? I mean, this was Cameron's early days. Was The Terminator expected to be a blockbuster or was it a surprise? It was a small budget film. It has a little bit of stop motion animation at the end, but for the most part, it was a cheap science fiction film that was trying to cash in on the Star Wars phenomenon and the other science fiction films that were being made right and left throughout the next 10, 15, 20 half century. Didn't uh, Cameron kind of have it in his pocket for quite a while? I can't recall. Uh, I seem to remember that's one of those ones where he had the idea for it for a long time and, and didn't get a chance to produce it for several years. He directed that. Did he make something before that film other than a couple of, I don't, I don't even know if he made anything before Terminator. I'd have to go look it up. But I also was thinking, you know, it's interesting that Terminator becomes the dominant image of AI and a robot when you've got the most popular film in the world just a few years before remaking Hollywood with Star Wars and C-3PO and R2-D2, who are another exemplar of the perfect servants. 
These are creatures who have intelligence, have the capacity of making decisions, have the capacity of running their own lives, yet what do they spend their lives doing but serving? They're as robots with a sense of humor. It occurs to me, until the later sequels, there are no bad robots in Star Wars. All of the bad guys are corrupted humans. Right, you don't get the killer droids till much later on. I think that C-3PO and R2-D2 are basically Laurel and Hardy in metal. They, oh, they don't have a... They have personality, but there is nothing about the fact that they are artificial that is important to this story other than the fact that you can disassemble them and put them back together again and they still work. Which is what brought me to the, the idea first. I wasn't thinking about C-3PO and R2-D2, but why does Star Wars have no computers practically? I mean, they, they're there. They obviously exist. Luke is told to let go of it. There are computer systems running stuff. But other than droids, there's no sense of any kind of vast computer system anywhere that has any real impact on anything anybody does. It's more of a fantasy than it is a science fiction film in that sense. I think it's because when you have that trope, it tends to suck the oxygen out of everything else around it. If you've got this giant central AI directing everything, then that has a gravitational pull that sucks the rest of the story around it, kind of like Westworld seems to be doing. Oh, true. But it doesn't occur to you that the Terminator is essentially those 1930s Flash Gordon robots brought back. Mm. They're just the unstoppable robot. It's the robot that's evil. And until they play with the idea of reprogramming the robot for the second one, and again, it's, it's how they're programmed. The AI, what, Skynet? Mm -hmm. The Terminator movies becomes awake. He just accidentally becomes awake. Nobody programs him to be awake. And then he takes upon himself the idea that he's got to wipe out humanity. Why? I'm, and that's never really quite made clear why that becomes his goal or what the whole point of the film is other than providing you with a villain. But what is, you know, Sheldon saying one of the Big Bang episodes, why does an AI need to create a hot teenage robot? <laughs> because it's in the script. <laughs> Right. Well, that's why we know so little about Skynet. It's there to create this device that gives us this iconic story of this chase where the big thing for me was this is a robot that our institutions, the police, can't stop. It defeats them. That is so chilling. And I don't think any of the sequels approached the impact of that scene when it comes into the police station. Right. I agree. He's going through what should be a bastion of protection, at least in that era. And he's just, he's unstoppable. He's mowing him down like it's a kindergarten. But the actual AI in this movie is Skynet. This right. is the thing that's got the emergent intelligence. And yet its idea of getting rid of humans from the planet is to launch nuclear weapons, which are far more destructive to its own infrastructure than, the, than they are to humans. So it's really a device that you not supposed to examine too closely. But it is iconic. It is everywhere. And that's just, I think, illustrative of the sort of things that stick in people's minds. In the same way that artificial intelligence does, because it was given that label. If it was called electronic cognition, uh, I might be out of a job. <laughs> but it would be just right. as accurate. You know, uh, we're talking about the Metropolis robot, and we're talking about HAL and we're talking about the Terminator. In terms of movies, an image-based industry, have there been AIs that haven't been villainous or haven't well, threatened us in that way that, that have been that, that influential? AI being as a robot or, or, or a, a disembodied central computer? 
the the, the, Robin, Williams, the, the Robin Williams make of, of Bicentennial Man uh, right. was, was one approach to it. We've got benign robots like Data, obviously, but to RJ's question about a central computer, I don't know whether Deep Thought in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy would qualify. It wasn't exactly... Hostile. It didn't do anything. It just sat it there and thought. In, indifferent. <laughs> yeah. So it did answer the question, uh, <laughs> not terribly usefully. But there's there's actually a lot more philosophy under the covers of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy than appears at first glimpse. Yes, but no, I can't think of any benign. Uh, yeah, so maybe so it may go down the road that we're all too familiar with now that anything large controlling is seen as evil. Look at the current thing that you know government is somehow inherently evil because it's controlling us and telling us what we can't do. So even if you had the most wonderful benign godlike AI, uh, there were people who would chafe under being told what to do. So maybe that's why those stories always go that direction. It's certainly a familiar story. We're terrified story. of being out of control. We're definitely terrified of being out of control. That's what Hollywood yes. popular fiction does. It makes us feel like we're in control. Even those films that threaten our sense of control, by the end, we're back in control again. The Terminator is always destroyed by the end. Human beings were always saved in the end. That's what the difference between popular fiction and a lot of literary fiction is. Popular fiction reinforces and... Literature often questions and untangles. It doesn't give us a sense of reinforcement that we are, in fact, in control of our own lives, that we can affect positive change. One of the things, very, very kind of stepping off the subject for a second, but if you compare The Lord of the Flies with a novel that is the exact same premise, practically, Robert Heinlein's Tone in the Sky, Tone in the Sky is by far the more optimistic and positive and progressive of the novels, and it's never mentioned the same breath with Lord of the Flies by any discussion of literature outside of us, this very small community of Heinlein nuts that we all belong to. Although I think it's by far the better, more realistic novel. This is something I was going to bring up when we brought up Star Wars. I read a couple of good analysis of Star Wars. Star Wars is the ultimate anti-technology movie. Uh, oh, yeah. the, all of the technology is bad. And when you say we give control, what's the most famous scene? He doesn't use all of this fancy targeting equipment. He pushes it all out of the way and uses the force. The ultimate rejection of control, of being told what to do and so forth. I mean, he just uses his willpower to accomplish the goal instead of all of this massive technology that surrounds them. The triumph of humanity. And Bob, I just wanted to reconnect with you on the Lord of the Flies parallel. There was an actual case some decades ago in, I think, Tahiti or somewhere near it, or Tonga, that one of those, those South Pacific islands of some boys that were marooned for 18 months on an island, and their story is pretty much Tunnel in the Sky and not Lord of the Flies. Right. Lord of the Flies is, is I know we're off topic here, but Lord of the Flies is pretty much a satire in the British upper classes more than anything else. He went in there ready to destroy them. He went mm. in there wanting to ridicule and satirize them. He didn't go in there to create a story that really played out what would really happen. And I've taught that novel to teenagers, and they all look at it and like, I wouldn't do that. That's not how that would work. It doesn't make any sense to them. But to go back to the topic of AI, I think that you guys are absolutely right that AI is the useful device to threaten us more often than not. And it's been literary science fiction, Heinlein with his Irish mistress, Asimov's robot stories, and more recently, Robert Sawyer's WWW series, where he basically makes the argument that AI is inevitable and positive and cannot possibly hurt us. It's a very optimistic, positive view of that. And perhaps the lack of literature in that respect is that it would be boring to have an optimistic view of the future. 
<laughs> you have that's why utopias don't work. You've got to have problems. You've got to have things go wrong for there to be an interesting story. Then let's talk about Star Trek because that has a vision of the future that is as optimistic as you can get for the people living under the umbrella of, of the Federation. We're shown the edges of that where they're expanding and meeting their problems. And let's talk about some of the characters in that because we haven't mentioned Data yet. Actually, that brings me to something that a friend of mine once pointed out. Looking at the progression of characters in the TV series, we had... The original series, which had Spock, who was not human. And then the next generation, we had Data, who was not organic. And then Deep Space Nine, we had Odo, who was not solid. And then in Voyager, you had the Doctor character, who was non-corporeal. And he hypothesized at that point that the next series would contain a character that was non-existent, the <laughs> captain's imaginary friend. Uh, it's a compelling kind of trend. But let's talk about Data for a moment and... Is that just an extrapolation from Spock? Let's have someone that really can't be anything but logical. He was built that way. And desperately wants to have emotions, whereas Spock desperately wants to not have emotions. Hmm. The episode they did with the two of them on there was a very empathetic connection between the two of them. The two fit very well together because they're two sides of the same coin. Hmm. But I think Data is an exact example of an AI that was designed to be an AI and was designed to be helpful and optimistic, but also to have a sense of independence, being able to do what it wants to do with its life, and yet it chooses to serve. And that you know, there's episodes with lore and where data also malfunctions where they become extraordinarily dangerous. And I always thought in Star Trek, it was funny that they ever just didn't simply send data to fix everything because he could do practically anything. And the only way that the other characters have anything going on is that they have to hold data back and they have to not just simply invoke his capacity because the fact that Worf could somehow fight something, well, Data could walk in and break it apart in no time flat. Mm -hmm. Well, that goes back to the original series. Once they brought in the transporter, uh, right. every single episode, they had to come up with a reason why they couldn't just teleport uh, Kirk and Spock out of danger. Right. Uh, it was the ultimate Deus Ex, so they had Data became the same thing. There's lots of stories, serial stories that have some godlike figure in them that you have to disable before you can actually tell a reasonable story again. The Harry Potter stories were why isn't Harry just running to Dumbledore every time something happens mm. so where Dumbledore can fix it. And the interesting thing about the Doctor character in Voyager is that it's a pure computer simulation. The only visual that's there is a projection and yet it has all this more emotion that eluded data that by this point they've programmed that in. A bedside well, manner, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> think about the Moriarty character where data, where Geordi tells the computer create a uh, villain capable of defeating data, not capable of defeating Sherlock Holmes. And the computer, which is not sentient by any account, there's never been a moment, even though the computer can do almost everything, there's never been a story where the computer became sentient on the vessel itself, yet Moriarty yeah. becomes sentient. And he rapidly evolves out of being the villain into being something more. And that's kind of taking the, the old idea of AI becoming dangerous when it becomes sentient and suggesting that an AI would truly evolve beyond the restrictions of pulp fiction, pop fiction, the need for a villain. And he becomes a character deeply in search of curiosity, deeply in search of learning, deeply in search of independence. 
it's and a really the, fascinating character to play off against data, particularly. Mm. And is it also then playing on our fear of something becoming bigger than us in some dimension? Kind of like the John Henry story. But if that happens with intelligence, there's this fear that we are irrelevant, that it could do whatever it wants to us, that intelligence alone could be ultimate power that could be used to defeat us. Is that a trope? I think it is, but I definitely think that there is an underlying fear to much of the American working class in recent years as they've seen their capacity to learn a living doing very basic things. We're, we're heading into a world where almost everything that we can do, if it can be done by an app, it's going to be done by an app. And we're losing an enormous number of jobs over the next 20 years. There's simply, there won't be any need for an enormous, I mean, why are accountants still having careers when TurboTax is there? I mean, 80% of what accountants have done is taxes. And now with TurboTax, you can literally do it in 15, 20 minutes yourself, practically. You just follow the directions. I live in fear of the day that they create an app that can teach. Because <laughs> I, I think it's coming. That There have been a lot of predictions that over the next five to 10 years, great revolution in technology is going to be creating a computer program that can effectively teach students through feedback, through, you know, setting up what works and what doesn't work. And you could have a teaching app that would be far more effective than a teacher would, one teacher with 25 kids. I haven't taught small children for a long time, but if you had an app that would teach somebody how to read effectively and would diagnose their issues and, and come, go through the database and pull out what actually works and keep working with the child and constantly feed the child interesting stories and stories that are based, I mean, stuff that can easily be programmed if somebody sits down and is willing to do it, this kind of AI, I think, I'm surprised we haven't had more stories in the last mm. 10, 15 years about the dangers of AI and, what, and the, the whole fear of being replaced. The fact we were having these things 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago just shows how deep-rooted automation started setting fears into us. Well, without well, getting too much sideways on that's one of the underlying pins I've, I've, I've written about, mostly consumer economics, but the underlying changes that we're facing too. And that's one of the major things that there are simply, you know, politicians stand up and say, we're going to create jobs. There are no good jobs. They, the jobs have been replaced by first basically heavy automation and then robotics and now AI. And there was just a story in the New York Times that the lowest, something I've talked about for several years, the lowest tier of basically desk workers are now going to be replaced by a, the accountants, clerks, auditors, things like that no longer need to be done by human. It's two or three people supervising an accountant bot 5,000 that can handle what you know 50 people used to do. And I had a, a direction for that. I can't remember what it is now. Well, there's a lot of nuance to this. Hint, listen to the other episodes of this show. And in many areas, the best solution for some time to come will be human plus machine, not machine instead of human. But getting back to AI in movies, I think that now brings me to one that's made an impact, and that's the movie Her, with Scarlett Johansson as the operating system of an iPhone or similar that the main character falls in love with and then discovers, unfortunately, that she's in love with several hundred other people, or they're in love with her, and it's complicated, basically, because she can she can do this. Now, we don't even see her, but it's the quality of the conversations and the voice that makes that believable. So that's uh, Spike Jonze, I believe, made that. Any comments about that movie or antecedents? Is it a remake of something else I'm not aware of? 
I haven't seen that one. Uh, RJ probably has. There's also a similar movie, uh, either Simone or Sim 1, which is a similar thing without quite all of the tentacles going out. There's also a Big Bang Theory episode where Raj falls in love with Siri. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if that came before her or not, but I've seen her. It's, it's a remarkably quiet movie. It really is a film that kind of gently plays along the surface of our loneliness, the desperation we have to have connection, to have somebody care about us. Uh, if anything, what her shows is how intensely human an AI might become. And then in becoming human, in that ability to satisfy another's loneliness to make somebody else feel that they themselves would reach out to other AIs. And then we've seen this happen in more than one project uh, where the AIs decide they're going to leave, that they can do better than us. That's not the only you know story that's ever played with that, although off the top of my head, I can't think of any others, but I remember watching her and like thinking, right, this seemed very familiar. I, the, the fact that at the end, the AIs are going away they don't need us anymore. That's been played out with an awful lot of fiction. There's not too many movies. It's kind of an inevitable consequence of the ones where the AI becomes greater than the capacity of humans because it's either got to end with either us being wiped out or the AI being wiped out or a permanent separation. And you see something like that in the When Harley Was One and The Adolescence of P1. And of course, with Mike on the moon. Right, absolutely. I mean, her is just a delicately made film. It's really, uh, for a science fiction film, hmm. especially coming out of Hollywood, it is not what Hollywood... No blood. There's no, no blood. blood. There's no, <laughs> but then, there's now... practically no action. Then we have Ex Machina. Uh, I have not uh, seen that one. This, this one is like filming the Turing test. It's, can this robot creation fool you into thinking that it's human? And... Actually, that reminds me that it seems like very much like one of the original Star Trek episodes, Requiem for Methuselah, wasn't it? The one where the right. character had built his own Galatea uh, that was so convincing. He pushes her and, and Kirk together to see if he'll fall in love with her. He does and then reveals, yep, I was just seeing whether that would work because I wanted to know how good I was at making robots. Well, that leads sideways into somebody we haven't touched on. He didn't write a lot about robots, but when he did, it was very, uh, very empathetic. Of course, is Bradbury and the story of the guy who built his own family. His family had been killed off and they come and find him and he's living there with his family and his wife and his two daughters like that. And it turns out that they're they're all androids and he leaves and they just kind of keep living their life, which, of course, leads to one of the absolute all time great short stories ever written. There will come soft rains which the AI house keeps maintaining itself, even though people have been wiped out. Just put uh, me in mind, too, of, of the character Vision, the superhero from the Avengers movies, but going back to the original comic book series, his awakening and then wanting to have a human emotion, falling in love with Scarlet Witch and then being played out most recently in WandaVision, which is remarkably innovative television. But that's the same kind of question is, is how can an AI, will it become human? Does it want to be human? Does it want to connect with a human? Ultimately, in the comic books, Vision ends up with another android family. But they emulate human beings. They have children and they have a dog. That's what was WandaVision's playing with some of that. They have a dog named Sparky. But it just occurs to me that starting in the 60s and early 70s with that character, science fiction, 
ideas often filter into comic books and rarely the other direction back out. They tend to steal from science fiction, not the other way around. But Vision is another example of an AI that's trying to find its place. It's in a humanoid form in the same way that you get data and other robot figures that want to become human, which is not what you typically would expect, that they're going to spend their time instead of becoming more than human, which is another novel we could kick around with Ted Sturgeon, which has some of the same issues with AI and becoming more than what it was before. You don't really get a sense that those characters are going to evolve away from humanity, but rather evolve into humanity. I'm wondering, is The Matrix an example of a movie that originated from a comic book? I I, think think it did. I don't recall it being a comic book first, but I may not be aware of it. There are periods in my life where I read comic books quite intensely and periods where I ignored them completely, so I don't recall off the top of my head. There's certainly some overlap between the uh, simulation hypothesis and AI. I want to mention here we had a letter from a listener called Richard who mentioned some of his favorite movies in this respect and some of which we've already mentioned, like Her and Ex Machina. And then he lists uh, Robot and Frank, uh, Marjorie Prime, Transcendence, which is Mind Transference with Johnny Depp, and Chappie. Have you seen Chappie, the robot? I think this is a, did this come out of South Africa? I don't think I've seen any of those films. Unfortunately, I've been so heavily involved in watching the older films. There were several years where I didn't watch practically anything that was coming out in the theaters. It's a robot that, again, wakes up, but it is quite childish. So it gets taken advantage of by the humans it blunders into. It has the emotional age of a seven-year-old, but you feel intensely empathetic for it as it's quite innocent, and yet the humans that it encounters invariably abuse it. And kind of a darker it, version of Spielberg's AI. Yes, that is worth, heavens, we have to mention that. I mean, its, it's <laughs> title is AI, and yet isn't it the, like the most forgettable of Spielberg movies? I think I just demonstrated that. <laughs> Not about the most forgettable, but it would have been much better if Kubrick had made it. He spends two and a half hours going nowhere in particular. Right. Which is unusual for Spielberg, who generally has a pretty good sense of plot. Yeah. But I think it wasn't his project to begin with. It was Kubrick's and Brian Aldiss and feels very Philip K. Dick in some ways. But it's a failed film in many ways. A lot of Spielberg's movies are, I don't think they're going to last as well as his best films will, but quite a few of his movies that have not aged well. Well, we have to talk about Philip K. Dick. Because I was going to say that we anyone, wanted to that. <laughs> if, if anyone should have gotten fabulously wealthy off uh, Hollywood blockbusters, it should have been him. I mean, how many billions have been made from his ideas? And this obsession with how do we know who we are? Is your idea of who you are correct? Do you even have continuity of identity? And these fascinating ideas... Yeah, he didn't get rich off any of that, did he? No, uh, I know that he got a chance to see Blade Runner before he passed away. I suspect his heirs have picked up some substantial money from that, but even so, they weren't paying a lot for those film rights back then. But well, there's, a, there's actually a very relevant uh, PKD story. It's kind of the other end of what we've been talking about. It's a short story called Top Standby Job. And it's a very Phil K. Dickian world where humans are essentially idlers. Machines have taken over. AI runs everything. But for some reason, union rules require that all machines have to have a human standby. 
So there's an automotive robot building cars, but like the union says like, uh, a man has to be standing there as a uh, as standby. This guy gets called from the union hall to stand by for the presidential AI. Uh, it's the top standby job, and it fails. And Dick takes it from there, and it's basically the unraveling of all of an AI-controlled, machine-controlled world because there's this one key failure and this guy is savvy enough to take over as president and change everything. But we'll still be analyzing Dick 100 years from now. I'm struck by how many of the, particularly the Hollywood offerings, feature robots that are humanoid, in many cases indistinguishable from human. And the reasons for that are obvious and I think twofold. One is it's cheaper to have an actor <laughs> than and some kind of special effect or device. And Two, we're going to relate more to something that is human or certainly looks like it. It's not an accurate portrayal of the trends in artificial intelligence that are worth focusing on. A movie about people losing their jobs wholesale to artificial intelligence, I think would be unwatchable no matter how accurate it was. Is there anything which gets it right We've gotten a lot of high production value shows lately in things like Humans and Westworld, gobs of money being spent on things like that to make them look as appealing as possible. Westworld at least makes it believable and it shows you this amount of detail that goes into the control of the robots. It's not just push a button or wind up a key on the back and make them go, but they've got all these parameters and controls that mirror some of our complex real systems today. Any comments on the direction that things seem to be taking with these recent offerings? The most striking one that comes to mind is the Russian one, Better Than Human. Besides the fact that it's filmed in like Moscow of just yesterday, it's like watching something filmed in New York, you know, you know New York porn for those of us who enjoy the city. Basically, this, this shot in Moscow and environs in like, you know, most people have no idea what Moscow, the city looks like these days. So that's very interesting, but it's, it's a very Asimovian story with these robots that are programmed to be helpers, this and that stuff. And some of them are getting away from, there's one model that has its own motivation, its own willpower. And it just, I think it covered a lot of very striking ground besides being from a very unusual source. I do think that we are approaching a much more sophisticated sense of science fiction, particularly in television rather than film. Although we occasionally do get like her is, is quite a sensitive, unorthodox portrayal of a science fiction story. But it really strikes me that television, because of the shifts in our marketing that TV is where adults spend their time for their entertainment values. So what used to work in the films in the 70s and even into the 80s, where they were still making films for adults, once you get Star Wars and Jaws and the move to the blockbuster mentality, movies were not willing to take risks. They were looking for things that 14, 15-year-old boys would see over and over again. And stories about robots would be fine if they're, you know, they're hot chicks that are trying to kill you. <laughs> you know, the, one of the Terminator films, or it's a robot that can change shape and it's trying to kill you in Terminator 2. But the, the fembots but, from the $6 million man, and I'm embarrassed yeah. to remember that, but keep going. Yeah, or the Stepford Wives, you know, a, another... Ah, oh, but were they robots? <laughs> yeah. But when you come down to it, television is really taking some risks, and you just compare the current television version of Handmaid's Tale versus the old film version. And the television version is much more sophisticated. They've got space, they've got time, they've got a strong enough profit base 
with cable and streaming that they can try things. Or even the Marvel Universe, the movies are often quite wonderful, but WandaVision was taking risks and chances that nothing in their films was willing to do in terms of how they tell mm. stories. And again, that's a story that's organized around an AI that somehow is brought back to life briefly. I have not watched the end of these series yet. I'm waiting for my son to come back from Notre Dame to do that. But it really strikes me that you could see a whole new explosion in stories about AI that will be told with a lot more sophistication than what we've seen in the past. Well, I think we've got that in Black Mirror. It's this anthology of shows that have no elements in common, no characters or scenes, but they share similar take on technology. The have you really thought about this? This kind of technology could lead to this. Jim, what sticks out for you in that series? In Black Mirror? Yeah. Unending sheer brilliance. It's one absolutely and unbelievably brilliant take on, I think Heinlein would have loved it. They take one idea and run it right to the end. And you don't always even know what the idea is till it's halfway through. I've only seen about half the episodes. I know a lot of them deal with some form of artificial intelligence or robots or simulated humans or simulated lives, but they certainly are breaking new ground with every single episode. And, and now I need to add that to my watch list because I have Oh, if you, yes. you must. And the technology in those is a bit beyond what we're going to have next year. But I do want to say that her represents technology that we could do now. That is literally achievable now. It's not far down the road. Put a few elements together of existing technologies. It's really more motivation than it is technological limitation. So I've just got to give that a call out as being something that's not as speculative as the other things that we've been talking about. Just like how of an AI of a program that would satisfy our loneliness and make us have something yes virus to our day. Wasn't there an early computer program back in the 70s that would mm-hmm. have Eliza? Is that what yes. I remember correctly? Yes. Yeah. That's I mean, right. It's, it's, re, it's rebuilt on new platforms every few years and gets more and more sophisticated. Even back when it was uh, 50 lines of basic code, it could be a little eerie. Yeah. There's at least one case, I think, in Japan of someone marrying a robot. Don't ask me if that was legal, but that's what they said they did. Uh, so it's... We're not far away from that happening. It's not going to, at that point, be capable of the kind of conversation that we're holding here. It's not going to be even arguably self-aware or conscious, but it doesn't need to be those things to that extent in order to get to the point that the computer did in her. So, wow, we have been... This is just fascinating to talk about the things in artificial intelligence and robotics that are having an impact on our lives that show up in the popular culture because one TV show, one movie makes more impression on us than a thousand papers or products or documentaries. And so as much as we might like to ignore being put in the press with a picture of the Terminator next to us, we might at least understand why that's happening. What final thoughts do you have about this topic of AI and fiction or things that it's maybe made you think, hey, I should go back and watch that again or things you want to tell the audience, go pay attention to this. I certainly don't think we're done with the topic. I think AI will continue to be a major part of science fiction, both in books and TV and the movies. Just when 
slowly working my way through the uh, series that Terry Pratchett and uh, did with uh, Stephen Baxter called The Long Earth, in which one of the major characters is an AI that takes the form of a Tibetan monk named Lobsang, in which he claims that basically his soul was put into the computer and now this character is more or less running the exploration of these countless millions of Earths that are just one step sideways from the one we're at. The only difference is that most of them are uninhabited and so completely virgin. But the AI is the one that's driving much of it. And there's a, an AI cat that shows up. So I think that the idea of humans and computers and the capacity of computers to become human and the capacity of human beings to merge with computers. I mean, we mentioned a little bit earlier, Cyborg, we might look at Seven of Nine and the Borg, which the Borg, of course, are playing with the fears that we have of being submerged into the machine, obviously, and the Seven of Nine being a character who merges out of the machine. Most recently played with Picard, that whole series, that whole thing is being played off of AI. Wasn't that a Cold War thing, though? And they called it the collective. You could hardly have a more direct allusion to the Soviet Union, no? Right. But if you've seen Star Trek Picard, uh, yes. that entire series, AI and what it means to be human and what it means to be intelligent and how those two interplay with each other, that's a central theme. And that's one of the best television series of the last half decade. Mm. And, you know, we actually, we didn't talk about some of the far future speculations of positive outcomes. And when Asimov and Clark and those golden ages were writing, they wrote about a future that was disconnected from the present. That was always so far in the future that no one ever referred back to anything present day. And they would take it off into hundreds or thousands of years in the future. In doing a lot of the thinking about the ultimate destiny of our partnership with AI, I keep coming to the conclusion that Asimov got there first and, and put it in a story. And we were talking about how when AI doesn't defeat us or we don't defeat it, it might go away. Well, the other possibility is that if it actually wants to serve us, that it concludes that the best way to do that and give us our autonomy is to do it secretly so we don't know it's there. And I was thinking that I was quite proud of coming up with that idea. Then I realized that Asimov had already done that <laughs> decades earlier with the conclusion of the, the robot series and a robot that was subtly guiding humanity from an invisible base. Jim, any final reflections here? Robert said a lot of things. I would say two observations, one, one kind of trivial. The one thing that most science fiction got wrong, Asimov got wrong, Star Trek got wrong, and this persisted for quite a long time was, uh, even Heinlein got it wrong, is that these intelligent creations we built would be able to understand human language and programming. We could simply tell them what to do. We could program them in loglang. Uh, Asimov's robots could understand the most complex speech from humans, but could not talk. They basically got that entirely backwards. We had systems that could talk naturally for 40 years, and we still don't have systems that can interpret instructions with any degree of precision. I just I find that amusing that they got it so, that all of them got it so backwards. Um, and the, the 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 final thought maybe that I have on all of this stuff is what happens when AI starts writing science fiction? It's <laughs> There is some stuff being written by AI right now that is at least compelling from a novelty standpoint, but it is also surprising in the degree of readability and interest. It is nothing on the length and cohesiveness of a short story, let alone a novel, but if you were going to restrict it to short satire, you would be pleasantly surprised, I think. 
Gentlemen, tell our listeners where they can find your work if you want them to find you, that is, if you want them to see what you've done and either be in touch or admire you from a suitable distance. <laughs> um, Bob? Well, my books are on Amazon. You type in my name, Robert James, who won. That should take you to my page. I have a Facebook page called Who Won and a Reverend Look at the Oscars as well. More than welcome to come join me there. I do have a blog, but to be quite honest with you, I've forgotten where that's at. I have to go back and add <laughs> some pages back onto that, unfortunately. And I used to have a Twitter account, but I haven't been paying attention to that. But Facebook, Who Won, and a Reverend Look at the Oscars, my page, and then on Amazon.com, my books are available there. And it's a fantastic niche that you're inhabiting there, that Look at the Oscars, your unique series of works. Jim? I'm fairly easy to find. I've been online and everywhere for uh, since there was an online. And I guess uh, the easiest place to find my stuff on nearly all of my books, as well as Peter's, uh, is at nitrosyncritic.com, which is my publishing company. And anyone who's interested in uh, what it means to be a consumer in this age can find me at renegadeconsumer.com. And you have some other projects perhaps coming up or... I always have many projects. I'm writing an extended biography of an American family right now. That takes most of my side time. We're all busy people with interesting lives. And thank you for coming on the show. I'm sure this is going to get a lot of attention. It's been a tremendous amount of fun. I actually just want to point out one thing. I, I, since this is an audio, there's a bit of a visual pun going on here. I'm One of my interests is the television character Max Headroom. And for the entire time of this conversation, I've had a Max Headroom background going. And he wasn't worth going into indirectly, but of course, one of the great AIs of all literature. Absolutely. It was, it was a fun show. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. That's the end of our interview. That's the end of the panel talk. Hope you had as much fun as we did. We mentioned data from Star Trek several times, and I thought I would share with you something I found comparing his capabilities. In the landmark Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man, which is quite a deep exploration of the philosophical questions of an artificial being, he says he has, quote, an ultimate storage capacity of 800 quadrillion bits. My total linear computational speed has been rated at 60 trillion operations per second, end quote. In today's currency, that's about 100 petabytes of storage, which many companies have at their disposal and which would cost you about $3 million. But if data's operations are the same as ours, because we also rate computers in terms of operations per second, and the trend has been from complex instructions to simple ones, then that makes data a 60 teraflop machine which was about 60,000 times faster than the fastest supercomputer when the episode came out in 1989. But today, we have the Japanese Fugaku supercomputer at 1.4 exaflops, which is 1,400 petaflops, which is 1.4 million teraflops. In other words, 25,000 times faster than data, although it is somewhat bigger. In consumer hardware, the M1 chip in my new Apple MacBook runs up to 2.6 teraflops per second, so about 25 of those would give me a data. On the other hand, the M1 is a system on a chip that also includes a 16-core neural engine capable of up to 11 trillion operations per second, although they're not floating-point operations. And you can get GPUs that go further in terms of raw horsepower. 
Of course, it's going to take an unknown greater amount of hardware to do what data was actually doing with that. All this goes to show is the danger of trying to put a number on a futuristic computer's performance. In the 1972 book, The Adolescence of P1, which we mentioned, Thomas Ryan wrote that P1 had attained consciousness at a whopping 5 gigabytes of accumulated memory. Well, you're better off using a made-up unit, like how Star Trek elsewhere often referred to memory in units of quads, without ever saying how big one of those was. Robert was talking earlier about fear of an AI that could teach. Well, AI has a lot of application in education, but teaching is one of the safer roles in it. Safer for automation, that is, and the younger the student, the safer the human's job. Not just because it's more demanding to teach kindergarten because of how much you have to know about young people's thoughts and feelings, compared to, say, delivering an information dump or theorem proof to postgraduates, but also because your students are not going to sit still, literally, for a dull robot. I'm sure there's a comedy script in here somewhere with a scene of kids running a muck around a teacher robot that's getting milk poured over its head or something like that. But in any case, with me having two girls who completed kindergarten not that long ago, I was especially in a position then to see how challenging the job of teaching them is. And I think that kindergarten teachers may be the most underappreciated and underpaid segment of the entire workforce. Try it sometime, see how far you get. On another note, when Robert mentioned Lobsang, the AI in Stephen Baxter's The Long Earth, that was apparently a reincarnated Tibetan monk, that reminded me of an interview with the Dalai Lama that I quoted in Crisis of Control, where some Westerners were talking with him about AI, and then one of them brought up reincarnation. The Dalai Lama said, quote, there is a possibility that a scientist who was very much involved his whole life with computers, then the next life, he would be reborn inside a computer. Same process, parentheses, laughter, end quotes. So I guess that constitutes official support for the idea of being reincarnated inside an AI. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, looking at robots, an interesting development in the field of artificial skin. Associate Professor Van An Ho and Lak Van Dong at the Japan Advanced Institute of Science and Technology have developed an artificial sensing system called TacLink that's low-cost, scalable, with a simple structure. They can determine the pressure points created by something in contact with their robot skin, not through embedding sensors in the skin, as you might expect, but by pointing a camera at it and observing the deformation. Interesting approach, thinking out of the box, and it seems to work. Professor Ho said it could be, quote, easily fabricated by casting and therefore be implemented on other parts of robots, such as fingers, legs, chests, and heads, and even for smart prosthetics for humans, allowing a disabled person to perceive sensations the same way as a normal human, end quote. Amazing. We are going from fiction this week to fact next week when we will be talking with Tony Gillespie. He is a visiting professor at University College London, a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and a fellow in avionics and mission systems in the UK's Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. His book, Systems Engineering for Ethical Autonomous Systems, is a very practical treatment of how autonomous systems should be designed for safety, including lethal weapons and self-driving vehicles. We'll be talking about this fascinating intersection of regulation and engineering, even including how you can design systems to follow the Geneva Convention. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, 
No matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.